As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to episode 100 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. Yep, that's episode 100. Who would have thought almost two years ago? But rather than some self-indulgent Q&A or other nonsense, let's get straight on with the reason you listen to this podcast. Today we head back to Northern Ireland around the turn of the century to look at a very difficult time. Though the events I cover today are naturally mired in the politics of the time, I focus on the human stories of those casualties, in particular the story of two teenagers. But firstly, as always, I would like to thank all my Patreon supporters, but especially our new members who have joined this special group this week. That's Dave Johnson, Peter Whitbread, Stacey Moore and Dennis Seigert. Thank you all so much for your support and I hope you enjoyed bonus episode 20, which was released the week before last, along with all the other exclusive content. Now let's get some context for today's story from February 2000. All Saints were top of the charts with Pure Shores, and Gabrielle with Rise at number 2. In the US, Mariah Carey, Yawn, featuring Joe and 98 Degrees were at number 1 with Thank God I Found You. In Australia, Number one was Macy Gray with I Try. And in the news this month, the last original Peanuts comic strip appeared in newspapers one day after the death of Charles M. Schultz. German extortionist Klaus-Peter Sabotter was jailed for life for attempted murder and extortion in connection with the sabotage of German railway lines. And in the UK, the Royal Bank of Scotland succeeded in their hostile takeover battle for its larger English rival, NatWest, successfully defeating a rival made by the Bank of Scotland. And what a success that turned out to be, huh? And me, that month, I was at White Hart Lane to watch the mighty Leeds United thump Spurs 2-1 with goals from Ian Hart and Lee Bowyer. Today we will hear about two young men who were just 18 and 19 when we take up the story. They belong to no political group, but like so many others at the time in Northern Ireland, they were caught up in the political conflict. Events take place in Portadown, which is a small town of around 20,000 residents, about 25 miles southwest of Belfast. But firstly, we need a little background to the events of that time before we can jump into our story. Formed in 1966, the Ulster Volunteer Force, or UVF, is an Ulster Loyalist paramilitary group whose stated goal was to combat Irish republicanism, particularly the IRA. 
and to maintain Northern Ireland's status as part of the United Kingdom. Malcolm Sutton's Index of Deaths from Conflict in Ireland states that the UVF was responsible for at least 485 killings during the Troubles and lists a further 256 loyalist killings that have not yet been attributed to a particular group. If you read the details of each of these murders, they're horrendous, as were so many attacks carried out by all sides in the conflict. The UVF was noted for secrecy and a policy of limited, selective membership. Just to re-emphasize yet again, I'm not interested in the politics, I've got no sides, it's the story that's of interest to me. In October 1994, as peace activity in Northern Ireland increased, all paramilitary groups were under pressure to call a ceasefire. And in October 1994, the UVF did so, shortly after the IRA. The more militant members of the UVF who disagreed with the ceasefire broke away to form a group called the Loyalist Volunteer Force, or LVF, which was led by Billy Wright. And Billy Wright was sent to prison on the 7th of March 1997 when he was convicted of two offences, committing an act with intent to pervert the course of justice and making threats against the life of a woman. He was sentenced to eight years in jail. But during his time in prison, LVF membership increased and it was widely thought that Wright was running the organisation from behind bars. Just to give an idea of numbers, it was estimated that at this time, membership of the LVF was between about 150 and 200, with many of them being former UVF members, disillusioned with the ceasefire. In the Mays prison in Belfast, at 5 to 10 in the morning, two days after Christmas in 1997, Billy Wright was escorted from his cell to be taken to see his girlfriend, Eleanor Riley. As Billy Wright emerged with two other LVF prisoners, three fellow inmates who were members of the Republican paramilitary, the INLA, quickly crawled through a cut section of fence, climbed over the roof and dropped down in the entrance yard where Wright was entering a prison van. Whilst prisoners and the prison officer cowered and tried to shield themselves, it was plain that the assailants had picked out Billy Wright as their target. He tried to stand up and kick out at his attackers, but he was shot and hit seven times, and he died almost instantly. Wright's killers were jailed for life, but later released under the Good Friday Agreement. And exactly two years after his death, on the 27th of December 1999, Members of the LVF were commemorating the anniversary at Porterdown Football Club Social Club. Then in walked 46-year-old Richard Jameson. Married with three children, Richard was a Northern Irish businessman and a loyalist. He served as the leader of the UVF's Mid-Ulster Brigade. With the bar full of LVF supporters, the atmosphere was tense when Richard walked in. And this was exacerbated by a recent incident when he was involved in a violent street altercation with an LVF member, Muriel Gibson, whom he accused of involvement in drugs and he slapped forcibly in the face. The atmosphere declined further and Richard Jameson was pushed and jostled by the LVF supporters, with some challenging him to a one-on-one fight and suggesting he should fight another man and not pick on an innocent woman like Muriel. Deeply offended and angry, 
He left only to return shortly with more men armed with axes and baseball bats as the Irish League Premier Division derby between Portadown and Glenavon was drawing to a close. In the violent altercation that followed, 12 people, including three LVF prisoners out on Christmas parole, received severe injuries. The LVF leaders were appalled by this action in their homeland and they decided to take revenge. And two weeks later, he was dead. His killers were waiting as he arrived home from working at his roof company at about 5.40pm. As he pulled onto his drive, a single gunman suddenly approached the passenger side of the parked jeep. Before he could react and get out of the car, and with the engine still running, the gunman opened fire through the window with a 9mm semi-automatic pistol and shot him five times in the head and the chest. His assassin escaped to a nearby getaway car and Jameson was rushed to Craig Avon Area Hospital, but the father of three died of his wounds minutes after his arrival. Richard's brother Bobby said there would be no paramilitary trappings at his funeral. He even denied that his brother was involved in the UVF and said he was a hard-working family man. Richard had only one fight, and that was the fight against drugs. He stood up against drugs and the hooligan element in Portadown, said Mr Jameson. He detested drugs and the people supplying them. These people are ruining young people's lives. It's time something was done. The police know who they are, and they should put them away, he told BBC Radio Ulster. Over the coming days, weeks, months and years, his family persistently denied that he was a UVF leader and maintained that he was shot on account of the firm stand he had taken against drug dealers in the Portadown area. But whatever the truth, this terrible event led to increased tension in Portadown as several people were questioned in connection with the shooting and there was talk of revenge in the air. Bars and clubs around the town were virtually empty. And then a few weeks later, in the early hours of Saturday the 19th of February 2000, an 18-year-old graphic design student from Porter Down, David McLewain, and 19-year-old Andrew Robb, an unmarried father of one, also from Porter Down, left a nearby nightclub called The Spot. They weren't mates as such, they just bumped into each other in the club. And also in their group was another man and two women, and the group of them tried to share a taxi together, but was stopped from doing so due to local regulations, stipulating no more than four people in a hire car. So letting the others go ahead, David and Andrew headed off in search for a house party, as you tend to do at that age. It was a number of hours later, at 9.30am, when it happened. The woman taking her children to a dancing class spotted the bodies 100 metres apart on a quiet country lane. Seeing that they were dreadfully mutilated and both lying in a pool of blood, she quickly called the police. When they arrived, police were met with an utterly gruesome sight of savagery and violence. Shocked detectives wrongly assumed that David McLewain had been shot in the face as his injuries were so severe, but later realised the terrible injuries had actually been caused by a knife. Their throats were both slashed so deeply that the teenagers were nearly decapitated. Postmortem showed that Andrew Robb had sustained a severe cut throat injury to the neck, a penetrating wound to the abdomen, with three more penetrating wounds. 
there were no defence injuries. And David had received a severe cutthroat injury, seven penetrating wounds to the chest and penetrating wounds to the face and left eye. Both attacks had clearly been brutal and sustained. David McIlwain's dad, Paul, backed up the police message that the two boys had no connection with loyalist paramilitaries, but had just been in the wrong place at the wrong time. He said that the two young men had been horrifically, brutally murdered and appealed for information about the killings. The people who did this, there's blood on their hands, there's blood on their clothes. They have come in with it and people know, and people who know should say, if you have any sort of conscience at all, please give some information. And Andrew Robb's uncle denied media speculation that the murders were linked to drugs. I can tell them now, Andrew had nothing to do with any drug pushers, he added. The investigation was complicated and there were lots of stories and rumours about who could have ordered the killings and who else might have actually been involved. The day after the murder, a number of people were arrested in connection to the crime, including 19-year-old UVF member Noel Dillon, and the suspects were all released unconditionally the same evening. On the 27th of February, another UVF supporter, Stephen Brown, was brought before the Armagh Magistrates Court after he was charged with both murders. The police told the court that they had plenty of forensic evidence connecting him to the homicides. But ten months later, Brown was released on bail after the court was told the prosecution had expressed doubts about their principal witness and the forensic evidence was not sufficient to secure a conviction. On the 6th of February 2001, the charges against Brown were unexpectedly dropped by the Director of Public Prosecutions. And in April 2001, another UVF supporter called Mark Burkham was arrested, but later released without charges. The families and friends of the two dead men were appalled by this. David's dad in particular, Paul, campaigned for years to obtain justice for his son. He enlisted the aid of a nationalist human rights group and set up his own online support group, Justice for David McElwain. He alleged that the police were protecting the identity of a local UVF commander who was reportedly present at the scene of the crime and was working as an agent for the Royal Ulster Constabulary Special Branch. Then on the 2nd of November 2005, the double killing was reconstructed on the True Crime Enthusiast's favourite programme, Crime Watch. After the programme, Mark Burkham consulted a clergyman and a solicitor and subsequently presented himself to the police outside Hillsborough Castle to give them information regarding the event which took place on the 19th of February 2000. He was interviewed about the killings over a period of four days and admitting to have known both the teenagers. He was arrested and charged with the murders, along with Stephen Brown, who had also been arrested on the 7th of November 2005 in connection with the double killing. When Detective Chief Inspector Tim Hanley charged Brown with the murders, the latter pleaded not guilty to each charge. And an earlier suspect, if you recall, Noel Dillon, he now had committed suicide in January of that same year. But in January 2008, Shortly before his trial was due to start, Burkham decided to turn Queen's evidence 
he formally agreed to admit and to give a full account of his own role in the murders and to give evidence against Stephen Brown. He signed an agreement under the Serious Organised Crime and Police Act 2005 to receive a reduced sentence in return for giving evidence against his co-defendant. In the end, he got two and a half years, and as we speak today, he's somewhere under witness protection. This move wasn't at all popular with David's dad. Standing in the public gallery, he shouted his objection. I'm the father of one of the victims, and I object strongly to any deal being done. Leaving the court, the families expressed their hurt and anger at what had happened. Paul McElwain said, I'm absolutely disgusted. Nobody approached us about this. There has been no consultation. There shouldn't be any deal done with Burkham. The families and their representatives feared that a deal done with Burkham by encouraging Brown to plead guilty would curtail the trial and thwart further disclosure against other, more senior loyalists involved in the killings. All they wanted to know is exactly what had happened to their children. The families also argued that such a deal was unnecessary as there was more than sufficient witness and forensic evidence to convict both men of murder. And at the subsequent trial they seemed to have a point. There was a lot of evidence outside what Burkham said. They heard that Brown had confessed to a woman he knew that he'd been involved in the murders and that forensic evidence had been uncovered in the investigation. Brown's DNA profile was found on David's jacket Tire tracks similar to the Peugeot 205 owned by Brown were uncovered at the bloody scene and pieces of green plastic from the top of an aerosol can were found at the scene with their matches discovered outside Brown's house. But the evidence given by Birkin was key. If we go back to the night of the murders when David and Andrew were unable to get a taxi and looking for a house party, they found one at the house of UVF man Stephen Brown, and many of the guests at the party were also supporters of that political group. As David, Andrew and some of the others had drinks and chatted all was fine, but then Noel Dillon, who we just spoke about who committed suicide earlier that year, asked the two teenagers for their view on the recent murder of Richard Jameson. Burkham, who was at that party in age 19 at the time, told the court that Andrew Robb was the only one to answer and said, so fucking what? It's got fuck all to do with me. And when told by Noel Dillon that Jameson had been a friend of his, Andrew sat forward in the seat and said, fuck him, in an aggressive manner. Feelings over that murder were still running high, and following that comment, there was additional tension in the house, and Brown told others that in retaliation for what Andrew Roberts said, he was going to punch the head off Andrew. Burkham added, he looked determined, furious in a way. I said just go for it. I wasn't bothered about what happened because it didn't involve me. Dylan and Brown left the house but returned about half an hour later and asked everyone if they were up for getting some more drink and some drugs, which David and Andrew were up for. And all five got into Brown's Peugeot 205 and sped away. Now what happened next is open to debate, depending on who you believe. But today I will take the account that Burkham later gave in court, reported in the Porterdown Times, with the proviso that Burkham was trying to save his own skin. 
When they arrived at a quiet lane, Burkham claimed that Brown ordered everyone out of the car, but that Andrew was asleep in the back seat. Burkham said that after he got out of the car and urinated into a bush, he met David in the middle of the road and told him, come on, we'll take a walk down and see if this is where the house is. Claiming that he suspected that this was where the others would commit the assault on Andrew Robb. Asked if he could remember hearing anything after Brown and Dylan went to the car, Burkham claimed he couldn't recall hearing anything but added, I don't know if I've blocked that out. Burkham then claimed that as he walked with David, he told him that Brown and Dylan wanted to give Andrew Robb a beating for slabbering about Richard Jameson, but added, don't worry about it, it's nothing to do with you. As he walked down the road with David, Brown and Dylan came walking down with a swagger, like a hard man's walk. Burkham claimed that David tried to run, but he either tripped or had fallen, and as he looked on, Brown had started to kick and stamp on David's head and body, and added that as David tried to get up, Brown kicked him in the side of the head. Asked to describe the nature of the kicks, Burkham said, It was like him running up and taking a penalty kick at a football match. He was kicking him so hard at one point that David McLoane was actually moving on the ground. He claimed that as David lay motionless on the floor, he saw Dylan walk over to him, drop to his knees and produce a knife from the sleeve of his top. Burkham further alleged that as he looked on from about five feet away, he saw Dylan make soaring motions at David's throat, whilst Brown stood by shouting, kill the bastard, cut his fucking throat. Scared for his own safety, Burkham got back into Brown's car, in fear, just panicking. He told the court that as the three went to drive away from the scene, Brown allegedly said he wanted to run over the bastard's head, but that Dylan told him not to. However, Burkham claimed that Brown stopped the car beside where David lay on the ground, with a wheezing noise coming from him, before getting out, holding the butcher's knife in a clenched fist, and then I could just hear continuous thuds. After the second or third thud, the noise stopped. Brown was just grunting as he was doing it. Then after Brown got back into the car and handed the knife to Dylan, he just seemed crazed with the alleged killer declaring, I'm buzzing, that gave me some buzz, I forgot what it was like to kill. Brown said to Noel Dylan that he'd seen David looking at him and so he stuck the knife into his eye. He said it made the same noise as gutting a fish and said when he pulled the knife out, he thought that David's head was going to come off with the knife. Burkham commented how Brown seemed like he was loving it, as if he was really proud of himself that he was doing something great. He added that Brown later told him he had done the stomachs and Noel had done the throats. It was at this stage that Brown allegedly issued his threat to Burkham that if he told anyone about what he had seen, he would cut his throat too, and Burkham fully believed him. This threat was repeated the next day, when Brown told him that if he could not cut his throat, then he would kill a member of his family instead, and told him if anybody asked about the previous night, just say you were drinking in my house last night with Noel and me, you can give us an alibi. David and Andrew's family and friends in court were visibly shaken, and some silently wept as they heard this most terrible account of what had happened from Burkham. Convicting 28-year-old Stephen Brown of murdering the two teenagers, 
Belfast Crown Court judge, Mr Judge Gillen, warned him he faced being put behind bars for a very long time as a result of the horrendous murders. In the end, Brown was told he would serve at least 30 years. There were emotional scenes as the judge told Brown that given the evidence against him, he'd no doubt he was guilty of killing the teenage boys. Jailing him, he branded the murders barbaric. These crimes were so horrendous that they offered no insight into human nature or the recurring pattern of human behaviour, he said. At the end of his three and a half hour judgment, he said that having watched Brown give evidence, he had no doubt whatsoever that I'd seen a man whose hands had been engaged in the executions of these two young victims. Brown stood in the dock totally impassive and yawning repeatedly. I mean, seriously? Seriously? As the judge delivered his damning verdicts. However, the families of his two young victims could not contain their relief as they applauded the verdicts and wept dignified tears of sorrow in the public gallery from where they had witnessed every day of the trial. Speaking outside Belfast Crown Court moments after the judge had delivered the guilty verdict, Paul McElwain and his wife Gail spoke of their satisfaction after nine long years of campaigning for their murdered son David. We are delighted. In saying that, we never had any doubt that if we got Brown into court for this trial, there would be this outcome. The unfortunate things it should have been nine years ago, although there are issues we're going to take up at a later stage, but for now we are delighted with the judgment. The judge has been fair throughout, and it's a remarkable judgment and a lengthy one as well. Asked how difficult it had been for them both to listen in court to how their son and his friend Andrew Rob were butchered, his weeping wife Gail said it was just terrible. While well, he added, his own voice close to breaking. It's been a very long struggle, very emotional, because we didn't think we would get to hear. Paul McElwain said there were still very many questions to be raised. I have no doubt there are a lot of people sitting thinking with a sense of relief, that's it and it's over. But believe you me, today is only the beginning of the campaign I have. I won't stop until I have every last one of them into the courts. Commenting on the evidence of Brown's former co-accused, who turned Queen's evidence for a lesser sentence, Paul admitted he had a lot of issues around Birkham. I understand fully his evidence was used and was compelling as to the actions of Brown and Dylan, but his own role in the murders is yet to be explored. I don't believe for one minute he told us the complete truth. Asked what the past nine years had been like for the family, Gail said they'd had their ups and downs and things have been very, very hard and we've had our disagreements about things, but we were strong. We were strong in ourselves. As a footnote to the case, the Belfast Telegraph reported after the trial that Brown's dad was also a murderer who killed his mum when Brown was just a baby in October 1980. Incredibly, as Brown lay sleeping in a cot in the corner of the couple's bedroom, he escaped unhurt as his dad launched a sickening petrol bomb attack inside the bedroom, turning Brown's mum Irene into a human fireball just feet away. His mum died two months later in hospital from the horrific burns injury she suffered in the blaze, and it later emerged in court that her husband, Noel Brown, had been having an affair with a woman he had met while his wife was in hospital to give birth to their second son, Stephen. Nice. 
branded a liar and adulterer by trial judge Mr Justice Murray, Noel Brown was jailed for life for the callous murder in 1981. He has since been freed from jail and slipped anonymously back into society and is believed to still be in Belfast. So what do you make of what we've heard today? I must apologise for the graphic detail and also the language. I don't normally go into quite that level, but I think for this story, just to fully understand it, I think it's necessary. And as with all stories I cover in Northern Ireland, it's really difficult to get to the facts of what happened, as there are so many strong differing opinions on just what the truth is. What is certain, though, is that two innocent men were brutally murdered. Was it just Andrew Robb's comments about Richard Jameson that led to their murders? Or was there more to it? Sadly, like so much that happened in Northern Ireland around that time, I don't think we, and most importantly the families, will ever know for certain. So thank you for listening to episode 100 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. Please do join the conversation at the Facebook page where we talk about all aspects of UK true crime. Or to support the show and help me produce another 100, hey, 1,000 episodes, please go to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime, where you will find 24 length bonus episodes, as well as other exclusive content. So until we speak again next week, it is cheerio from me. Thank you all for your support for the last 100 episodes. Have a good week and remember, stay classy. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.